Good morning. My name is Craig, one of the pastors here. And I want to ask you, when was the last time you took something too personally? This morning, maybe? You just took, you just took a comment too personal? Maybe you were in an argument, in a, in a little scuffle uh, last week? Or you were in an argument, uh, some sort of intellectual debate about fiscal policy in 19th century Britain or something. And, but then the response that the other person gives is, oh, what do you know? You didn't go to Yale. What do you know when they start going personal? That you won the argument, right? Because it's no longer about the idea or the content of the idea. But they're just trying to attack you personally. Well, we do that a lot um, because we think that if you attack them personally, that that's actually going to try to get to them, right? That we should never take an argument personally. But surely sometimes it's appropriate, right? If someone says to you, please don't take this personally, but that's just an excuse for them to insult you and to say something probably personal. In this passage in Ezekiel that we are looking at, God, in this case, takes it personal. He takes it personal. He says, I and myself and my sheep and I will save you. He takes it personal, so that's what we're going to try to understand and meditate on, just how actually it's really good news that he takes it personal, that he responds in this way, that he takes the offenses personal, he takes responsibility to save us personally, and then he actually comes personally to us. Let's pray. Father, speak to us now. Speak to us. Show us your word by the power of your Holy Spirit. It is an, an unbelievable thing to think we can not only know you and worship you, but actually come into your personal presence because you chose to welcome us. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for this season. We thank you for this passage Convict, Lord, convict us, challenge those who are hard-hearted, and comfort those who are weary, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're continuing in our uh, Advent series. As we say every week, we don't, we don't see Christmas or Advent as actually prescribed in Scripture by God, but we take this really as an opportunity to speak into the season that is around us, and we're using these ancient prayers uh, that date back to something like the 6th century uh, called antiphons that are crying out for God to come, that were prayed the last few days before Advent. The one we have today is, O Emmanuel, our King and our Lawgiver, the hope of the nations and their Savior, come and save us, O Lord our God. In order to help us understand this O Emmanuel, we're going to look at this passage in Ezekiel. But to begin, I want us to realize what, 
What is amazing about Ezekiel? Now, if you ever thought that the Bible was boring, you have not read Ezekiel. Ezekiel is a prophet right around the time of, of Israel's exile. He is the passage that Samuel Jackson made famous, and I will rain down wrath or whatever, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. Because Ezekiel comes from a priestly family. And over and over and over again, in the book of Ezekiel, he is shown visions. He is shown abominations that the priests are doing to make the temple impure, to make the people of Israel unholy and unclean. And yet, he does this with, with such amazing sort of holiness and transcendence of God being on display, but he does it in such a personal way. In chapter 16, he talks about Israel, and he, he sort of walks them through their life as if they were this child at first that, that God rescued from dying in blood, and then a child that God matured into, into womanhood, but then it, it sort of goes downhill from there. And there's all these personal, tender moments that are combined throughout Ezekiel's uh, ministry that seem like they don't really go hand in hand with the holiness, the transcendence of God. These apocalyptic passages about the glory of God leaving the temple. But it is, it does go together because, especially in Ezekiel and other parts of Scripture, sin is not only idolatry, it's described as adultery. Over and over, it seems like Ezekiel wants to help Israel see you are whoring after other gods. That's his description. It's the opposite of the love command. The love command, the fulfillment of the law, Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Sin is the opposite. Sin is loving other gods. And so Ezekiel continues to describe it in personal adulterous terms. And we do need to start there. To think about our own sin, our own rebellion against God in adulterous terms because it's personal. It's personal with God. He has a right to take it personally. He chooses to take it personally. Because God is a person. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is the one who created you personally in his personal image. And he is the one that we rebel against in our sin. In chapter 34, thankfully, we've gotten more to a picture of redemption in Ezekiel's ministry. The first half largely is about the judgment that is going to come, but Ezekiel's ministering right at the moment of exile, and so he turns past judgment to more and more redemption. And in chapter 34, he's, he's prophesying this amazing redemption to Israel, 
But the condemnation first is against the leaders. It's against the kings, but it doesn't just include the kings. It includes the prophets, the false prophets that were speaking on behalf of God. It would include the priests. And Israel had a sordid history. Israel, I think it's important for us to realize what went into the exile. So you have David, the first king of Israel. His, he is a famous, famous sinner, right? Though he is, he is reigning and he is a righteous king in moments, he ends with adultery and murder. Not ends, but adultery and murder is the beginning of, of his downfall. Solomon reigns, makes, uh, builds the temple, but his, ministry, his, his kingship falls once he starts having so many wives and then his kids divide the kingdom. The kingdom immediately splits into north and south. And really, for the next 400 years or so, you only have a couple kings who are holy. A couple kings who are following the will of the Lord, not to mention all of the the corruption in the priesthood and the false prophets. And so it's into this context that God says, my sheep were scattered. What have you done to my people? They wandered over all the mountains and on every hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the world. He personally cares about their oppression. He personally cares about the injustice that is happening to Israel and by Israel. And as a Christian, we don't have to sacrifice justice or mercy. God is personally angry at it. And so, to understand the the importance of, of the exile, as we have in the famous song, right? O come, O come, Emmanuel, ransom captive Israel who mourns in lonely exile. They are estranged. They are cast out from Israel. And if you want to get a little taste, the book of Lamentations gives horrific description of what's happening to Israel. That that mothers are forced to eat their babies. That the, the destruction and the terror that is happening in Jerusalem, as a result of God's judgment, is intense. The powers of the world that God uses to judge them are cruel and horrific. But it's important to appreciate that context because, as we heard in Matthew, he gives a genealogy. And did you notice how the genealogy ends, which is the beginning of our passage in verse 17? He he makes sure we know that God is still in control, that there are 14 generations from this major redemptive historical event to this one, and then this one to this one, and there's about to be another one. From the deportation to Babylon to Christ, God is still in control. He is still orchestrating redemption because he not only takes the offenses personally, he's about to take responsibility for redemption personally. So if he, believe me, that, that, we, that is bleak 
But that is only the beginning of the story. That is only the beginning of the gospel, the bad news of the good news, if you will, because he takes personal responsibility. Verse 6, he starts saying in Ezekiel 34, he starts saying, my sheep were scattered. But then what does he do in response to the scattering? Well, he responds in verse 8, very briefly, he responds with a personal vow. As I live, declares the Lord God. That's vow language. I will promise, I will vow, but he has nothing greater to vow to, right? He's not going to put his hand on a Bible. So he's vowing to himself to what? To have compassion. To have surprising, surprising compassion. And I want to help us just remember how surprising it is because of what's happened in Ezekiel. If there was ever someone who wasn't going to come and get mixed up in the dirty nastiness, the, the, the sin of the world, it would be the God that Ezekiel is describing, this perfectly pure and holy and, and glorious God. But that's not what he does. That's not what he does when he chooses to take personal responsibility. And he says, starting, where is it, in verse 11, or no, it's earlier, Behold, behold, I am against the shepherds, and then I will rescue my sheep. Verse 11, behold, I, I myself. When do you say behold? Do you ever say that? You say it? Good. I'm glad. Thank you for answering. <laughs> behold, look up, pay attention. Don't miss this, God is saying. I, I myself. In, in some languages, the I is redundant. But in, the, in, in Hebrew, he adds it to add emphasis. So you could say, I went to the store in English, right? But in a lot of languages, you could just say, went to the store in a certain conjugation, and it includes I. In this case, you could do that with Hebrew, and he adds the I in. It's like, I, I went. He's doing that for emphasis over and over in this passage. By my count, in the ESV translation, he says, I, my, or myself, 40 times. 40 times in just 11 verses. That's amazing. He is personally invested. What does that mean? Does that make him some sort of selfish megalomaniac? That he's just, he just can't get himself out of his mind, so this is all about him? Well, when is that the case? When is it wrong to make it personal and make it about yourself? When it's not really about you, right? Adam, in contrast, after the fall, back in Genesis 3, he says, the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, this is Adam, he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Adam, you're focusing on yourself as if that's going to save you and you're losing your purpose. You are losing your purpose in life. In this case, God is focusing on himself, you could say. 
And in that case, he's giving us purpose. It is good for us for God to care about his glory. It is good for us to God, for God to care about taking personal responsibility because of who God is. That he is jealous for you. And we hear that so wrongly because all we know are bad forms of jealousy. Isn't that the case? That's why it's wrong to be the megalomaniac to say it's all about me. Because it's not really all about you. But in the case of God, what if it was? What if it really is all about God? And he has the right to say, I, you are mine. I myself will save you. We want him to do that. We want him to be personally invested, don't we? We don't have to compete with God. It's not a zero-sum game where the more God focuses on himself, the less he's going to think about us. And so the more we think about ourselves, the less we have time for God. It's not a zero-sum game. We think, I think a lot of times, we have this false modesty where surely God has better things to do he has a lot more important things to take care of. He's got wars all over the world, people dying of famine, so I won't bother him. What is wrong with saying that? Well, it puts a limit on God first. It says he only has up to 100 whatever amount of answered prayers to give. But it also says he doesn't personally care. Is that what we think God is like? That he is aloof? That he is somewhere off, not taking it personal? That he is objective? That he is the, deity, the, the deism God, that he is outside of space and time, so he doesn't care that much. He doesn't have passions and loves and desires he doesn't want to get involved in our messiness. That is the opposite of the God of the Bible, of the God of the Old and New Testament. A God that is aloof, that, that looks upon our suffering and sin and death and doesn't enter our world, that God is horrific. That God should not be worshipped. That God does not deserve anything because he just has the power to do it. He's not going to do anything. And that is not the God of the Bible. It's just not. Over and over, we see God taking the offenses personally, but praise be to God, he takes responsibility. That part where he says several times, I will rescue my sheep, and then he says, I will search for my sheep, in verse 11, and will seek them out as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep and have been scattered. So will I seek out my sheep. That word seek, it's, it's like going out to investigate, to, to, to follow after, to run after, to, to find them. And we cannot hear that and not think, of Luke 15, where Jesus tells the parable 
of the lost sheep. He says the very same thing. And he's saying it to tax collectors and sinners. He's in their presence, and the Pharisees are grumbling, saying, how can he be in the presence of these messy sinners? And in the response to the Pharisees grumbling against Jesus, he says this, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. This isn't Jesus coming up with a new version of God in the New Testament. Ezekiel 34, he says it right there. After all the judgment and whoring after other gods that Ezekiel is mourning after, that they're being cast out into exile. They're being shown at one time Ezekiel is given a hole in a wall to see what they're doing. And he's mourning and he can't believe that this is what Israel has become. And then he says, I, behold, I myself will seek out my sheep. As surely as I live, I will seek out my sheep. That they may know that I am Yahweh, that I am the Lord, their God. That's the purpose. And that phrase comes up over and over in Ezekiel. And sometimes it's after judgment. I'm going to judge them that they may know that I'm the Lord, their God. In this chapter, it's I will seek them out and I will bring them into the promised land that they may know that I am the Lord, their God. He has promised that. He has vowed that. And then finally, in Matthew 1, he does it. He goes from vow and promise to finally fulfillment. Emmanuel, God with us. So he does it. So what does that mean? Well, it means that not only is he, he, he says he's personally invested, he says that he's going to come, and he does. He comes humbly. He comes that we may actually approach and survive, not in the majesty and overwhelming glory of Mount Sinai, but he comes in a child that we may say, Emmanuel, you are the Lord is my shepherd. That we may say with, with doubting Thomas to the resurrected Jesus, my God and my Lord. That we can say with, with Psalm 3 that you are the lifter of my head, you are my glory. Because God has come to be among us. But with all this um, sort of personal language, God is taking it personally. I want to make sure we're not confusing this with an emphasis on how's your personal relationship with Jesus? Because there obviously should be a personal aspect that we have, 
But the emphasis here is that God is taking it personally. That's got to be the second step, that then I will have a personal relationship. It has to start and end with God, what he does, the way that he personally comes in the person of Jesus. And if it starts with him, it's going to be in the, in the right way. It's not going to become this narcissistic sort of faith that says, look how great I am that God would come to me. No, he's coming to a people that are in exile. He's coming to a people that have rebelled against him. He's coming to his, his, his faithless bride. He's coming to, these are the ways that we are described. And he comes to us. God comes to us. And as Westminster chapter 2 describes God, that he is the source of all goodness, that he is the source of life, it then says, to him is due from angels and men and every other creature whatsoever worship, service, or obedience he is pleased to require of them. That means he demands everything. He can demand whatever he wants. Because he has not sent just an emissary. He has not sent a delegate. He has not just sent prophets, though he did that. He hasn't just sent priests, though he did that. If you know the, the parable that Jesus tells at the end of his ministry, it talks about this very thing. He's sending servants, and then he finally sends his son. Maybe they'll listen to him, but they don't, and they kill him. In this case, he comes himself to redeem us. So he has come in the past. He's come in the past. That is the good news that we sing about and rejoice. All of these promises are finally fulfilled. He also promises to come in a very similar way, as far as similar language in the future. Revelation 21, you see similar language. Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself be among them. That you have this vision of the future that there will be no temple because God Almighty and the Lamb will be the temple, will dwell among us perfectly. That is the glory that we have to look forward to. And so how can we wonder if he cares? How can we wonder if he's aloof? How can we wonder if he is like an absentee father or a boss that isn't really around, that just commands you from afar? The glory that awaits us is almost too good to put into words. C.S. Lewis describes it like this. And, and, and I, I include this passage in the beginning of the bulletin because if we are trying, if we are going to try to appreciate what it means to say God with us in the past, in the future, in the present, we need to realize how big of a statement that is. How big of a statement that is and how glorious of a promise that is to every one of us. Listen to the way Lewis puts it. In the end, 
That face, which is the delight or the terror of the universe, must be turned upon each of us, either with one expression or with the other, either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. The promise of glory is the promise almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ that some of us, that any of us who really chooses shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, shall please God. To please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father in a son, it seems impossible. A weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. Isn't that to, to please the one who knows you better than you know yourself? He is the one who has come that we may then please him. The door on which we have been knocking all our lives will open at last, Lewis says. We do not merely want to see beauty, though God knows even that is bounty enough. We want something else which can hardly be put into words to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. Lewis is trying to understand how how are we going to share God's glory? How are we going to be united with God? And that is why he came. That is why he says, Behold, I myself will come that we would share in it. That we wouldn't just know about it. You, everyone of you in this room knows something about the God of the Bible. There are a lot of things we know about. But do you know God? Do you know that God is the one who is Emmanuel? God with us. That he seeks and searches you out. That we may say, behold, Behold, contrary to anything we may expect, contrary to having faced the rebellious and adulterous hearts that we have, this personal God comes as the Savior of sinners to die in our place that we may dwell among him. Let's pray. Father, we are in awe. We are in awe of what you have done, what you have promised to do in the future as if it could be better. And Lord, we ask that we could know you now in the presence, that we could commune with you by your word, by your sacrament, by your prayers, by your church, that we would draw near because you are drawing us
near to yourself. Lord, we thank you that you welcome sinners. We thank you that you welcome the outcast, the ones who the world says has no value. Lord, open our eyes to see that our value and worth is in Jesus Christ. To him be glory. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.